Welcome to Tales Told When the Windows Rattle. I'm Tim Prossel. A few years ago, I put together a book titled Spectral Edition, Ghost Reports from U.S. Newspapers 1865 to 1917, and it's filled with actual newspaper reports on haunted houses, haunted churches, haunted avenues, and you name it. One of the things that I kept running into when putting together this book was the issue of should reporters tell you the actual location of a haunted house because that could seriously damage the property value of that house. You're going to have a rough time renting it or selling it if there are rumors floating about that it's haunted. So I was really interested to come across a pair of fictional occult detectives who are in the real estate business. They actually deal with the purchase and sale of reputedly haunted houses. And it turns out in these stories, they're actually haunted houses. Their names are Alwine Sargent and Jack Hargreaves. They were created by an author with the interesting name of Alan Upward. This pair of characters appeared only in five stories. They only had five cases. The first one was published in Royal Magazine in 1905, and that's where the remaining four were published in 1906. I'll be reading the very first of their adventures, titled The Story of the Greenhouse, Wallington. In undertaking to relate some of my experiences in connection with the purchase and sale of haunted houses, I desire to make it clear that I have no theories to put forward on the subject of what is called the occult. I was successful in this class of business, but some of the adventures I went through were of such a character that I dared not continue. My nerves are fairly strong, but there are some things which I never wish to face again. I was first tempted to dabble in this unlucky class of business by the greenhouse Wallington. My partner, Mr. Mortimer, our, our firm is Mortimer and Hargreaves, mentioned to me one day that he had had a client in to see him who was very anxious to obtain an immediate offer at almost any price for a house situated in what was then the rural district of Wallington. He says he cannot sell the house because people think it is haunted. It is all nonsense, of course, but the people in the neighborhood have got the idea firmly into their heads, and now, if any tenants come, they are sure to hear of it directly and get frightened. The result is that he has lost tenant after tenant, and now the reputation of the house is so bad he cannot sell it. What sort of house is it? I asked, and what will he take for it? He says he'll take anything, five hundred pounds if he can't get more, though the house costs fifteen hundred to build. You'd better see the man yourself. I therefore dropped a line to Mr. Giltstrap, the owner of the greenhouse, requesting him to go down with me to see the property. On the way to Wallington, I put some questions about the house to Giltstrap, whose manner was rather reserved. He assured me it was in thorough repair, but he seemed reluctant to answer when I asked him about the ghost. Is there any story about the house, anything to account for its being haunted? No, no, what story should there be? It's a modern house, hardly built ten years. And how long has it been your property? I bought it as soon as it was put up. And how long has it been haunted? Mr. Giltstrap frowned as though he disliked to hear this word. 
He replied, The house has been talked about for eh, several years now, four or five. His disinclination to speak was so evident that I did not care to pursue the subject. We got out at Wallington Station, and as we passed a house agent's on the road, Gilstrap said abruptly, I must step in here and get the keys. Wait a moment. As a house agent myself, I could understand that he did not wish to introduce me to the local man lest it should lead to any dispute about commission, but my curiosity about the greenhouse was so strong that I could not resist the temptation to walk in after him. I was just in time to hear the owner say, I have called for the keys of the greenhouse, if you please. The local agent was evidently a man in a small way, for we found him in his shirt-sleeve seated at a desk in an outer office. He gave a cross look at Giltstrap and a suspicious one at me, and then rose and reached down the keys from a nail. I haven't been able to find a caretaker yet, he said with a touch of malice. They say you must pay them for living in such a house. Giltstrap reddened at this speech, which was calculated to put off an intended purchaser. He glared first at the agent and then at me, snatched the keys without a word, and hurried out. The greenhouse was a modern red-brick one, standing in a road with several others and certainly not looking at all the kind of place to have a supernatural legend attached to it. As soon as we got inside, I saw that the house was partly furnished. Giltstrap explained that he had been trying to get someone to come and occupy it rent-free for a time in order to live down its reputation. I asked if there was any room particularly connected with the ghostly rumors. After what struck me as a momentary hesitation, he led me upstairs into what was clearly the principal bedroom overlooking the front garden and the road outside. "'Is this where the ghost walks?' I asked as I glanced round the empty room. The paper on the walls was in good condition, and the ceiling had been newly whitewashed. There is no ghost, and it does not walk anywhere, he said irritably. But the people who sleep in this room complain. What do they complain of? He fidgeted and again showed some reluctance in answering. After a moment, he said, Oh, nothing except some nonsense or other. They say they do not sleep well and they dream things. Fancies, you know, fancies. Well, what sort of fancies, I persisted. If they dream, they must dream of something. Giltstrap glanced up at the ceiling and swiftly withdrew his eyes with a nervous tremor. I was now firmly persuaded that he himself had been the victim of some spectral horror, though he was anxious to conceal it for fear of frightening me off. Perhaps I had better not tell you anything, he said after considering a moment. There is a great deal in the influence of suggestion, so it is said. If I were to tell you what the people who have slept in this room have seen, or dreamt they have seen, that might be enough to make you dream the same. However, if a sensible man without any notions came and slept here, he would most likely never be disturbed. I thought there was something in what he said and did not press him further. There was a staircase outside leading to a second floor, and I moved toward it. How oh, do you want to see the other rooms? Giltstrap asked as he prepared to follow. I want to see everything, I said decidedly. Upstairs I found another room which had been left unfurnished. The prospect from the window showed me that it was situated over the haunted chamber. 
Is there something wrong with this room as well? I demanded. The servants don't like sleeping in it, was the grudging admission. It does very well as a box room. <sighs> I saw that it was useless to try to extract any more information from Giltstrap. After a thorough inspection, I decided that the house would be well worth twelve hundred pounds apart from its evil reputation. I went back to town with the owner and bargained with him on the way. I was very eager to secure an option to purchase the greenhouse at the end of a month, during which time I was to occupy it. But this proposal the owner obstinately refused. Anxious to secure a bargain, I gave way, and upon the training at Victoria Station, I had become the owner of the greenhouse at the price of five hundred pounds. My next step was to secure some attendance and to send down some furniture for the two empty rooms round which the mystery appeared to cling. In the course of negotiations, I had occasion for the services of my lady secretary. I was accustomed to discuss business matters with her, and as soon as she learned the character of the present transaction, she surprised me by displaying an unusual interest in it. She even volunteered her assistance. I wonder if you would mind my going to see the greenhouse, Mr. Hargreaves. I am very much interested in psychical research. Do you mean that you really believe there is something in it? I exclaimed in dismay. I had grown to look on Miss Sargent as a young lady of great intelligence, and I was not very well pleased at the idea of taking the ghost seriously. I know that there are things in nature which ordinary rules do not explain, was the grave answer. I have seen things myself which could not be accounted for by natural means. This was rather alarming. I recalled the strange, uneasy manner of the late owner of the greenhouse, and asked myself whether he had not been a secret believer in some occult happenings. I am what is called a sensitive, Miss Sargent proceeded to explain. I have a peculiar faculty for seeing any abnormal manifestations. A thought struck me. Would it be possible for you to go and pass a night or two there? I inquired. I don't mind telling you that if the apparition, or whatever it is, can be exercised, I hope to sell the house at a considerable profit, and I should be glad to pay a small commission. Miss Sargent appeared to welcome the suggestion. She was an admirable woman, the chief support of a widowed mother and three little sisters, and I knew she would like to earn something for them. The question was referred to her mother, who arranged to come with her, it being understood that I should form one of the party. I engaged a respectable woman to come in by the day, and on the evening agreed upon we went down together to take possession of the haunted house. Miss Sargent and her mother were installed in the haunted room, and I decided to occupy the attic overhead. After a pleasant supper the two ladies retired at about eleven o'clock. I sat up a little later, smoking a cigar, and contrasting the cheerful evening I had just passed with the lonely ones I was accustomed to in my West End chambers. Towards twelve I went upstairs, intending to go to bed, but whether it was the sensation of being in a strange house under such circumstances, or a secret apprehension of which I was hardly conscious, no sooner did I find myself in the room I had chosen than I was seized with an overmastering reluctance to get into bed. I took off only my coat, rolled myself well up in blankets, and tried to go to sleep. 
I am an old traveller and have never experienced any difficulty in sleeping in my clothes, in trains or under similar circumstances, but on this occasion the attempt was hopeless. I lay on the bed literally shivering, and not from cold. I neither saw nor heard anything. I was not alarmed in the ordinary sense. Yet, if I had known there was a murderer lurking in the room, ready to spring on me and stab me the moment I closed my eyes, I could not have felt more wretchedly afraid. Suddenly I, I heard a low moan, the moan of a creature in mortal terror, drawn out till it became a muffled scream. I flung off the blankets, raised my head, and listened with a beating heart. The moan was repeated, coming distinctly from underneath me. In an instant I had grasped the truth. It came from the room below. I sprang from the bed, and without stopping to put on my coat, lit the candle I had brought up with me. I flew downstairs. As I reached the first floor landing, the moan was repeated in a more terrible key, the key of horror rather than terror. At the same moment, the door of the haunted room was thrown open, and Mrs. Sargent appeared on the threshold with a cloak thrown over her shoulders and a look of fear and distress on her face. "'What is it?' I gasped. "'It is Alwine,' she cried. "'She is seeing something horrible in her sleep, and I can't wake her.' Without stopping to consider questions of etiquette, I dashed into the room. The gas had been turned full on, and by its light I saw the girl lying stretched on a couch at the foot of the bed, her features frozen into the expression of one who looks upon some horrid sight. <laughs> From her parted lips there issued those appalling sounds which wounded like stabs of a knife. I caught her by the shoulders and shook her without making the slightest change in her swoon-like condition. Water! I called out to the mother. She stood wringing her hands, too dazed to act. Finally the water was brought, and I dashed half a glassful in the face of the sufferer. At first it had no more effect than if she had been dead. Then came a startling change. The moans suddenly ceased. The victim opened her eyes, which showed the dull glassy stare of a somnambulist, and sitting half up, she commenced muttering so quickly and indistinctly that it was difficult to catch the words. The blood, the blood, the blood, the blood, dripping, 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 dripping from the, the, the red leak in the ceiling, the, the red leak in the ceiling, the red leak in the ceiling, in the ceiling, dripping on me, dripping on me, dripping on me. The words yeah. rose into a wild shriek as her blank eyes were turned full on the ceiling overhead, the ceiling between her room and mine. Involuntarily, I looked up. The ceiling did not show the slightest mark. As I had noticed when I went over the house with guilt strap, it was newly whitewashed. I thought I now knew why. The blood dripping, the blood dripping. But the, the dri moment was not for reflection. Help me to move her out of here, quick! I called to the mother. The Between the us, we lifted the up the unconscious sea. woman and carried her out of the accursed the room the and sea, into one adjoining, where we laid her on the, the bed. The Hardly had she passed the doorway of the haunted chamber when the dreadful ejaculations began to die away and the rigidity of the features to relax. In a short time, the trance condition passed away into a deep sleep, and I was able to leave Miss Sargent to her mother's care. At breakfast the next morning, Mrs. Sargent explained that, upon waking, her daughter remembered nothing of whatever had passed in the night. She was barely conscious of having had a bad dream. 
At her own request, I described to her what had occurred as minutely as possible. She was profoundly impressed. I am certain, she declared with conviction, dreadful as it sounds, I firmly believe that somebody has been murdered in that attic in which you slept, and this poor person's blood dripped through the ceiling of the room below as I saw it last night. Reluctant as I was for many reasons to entertain such a suggestion, I dared not neglect it altogether. I determined at all events to do whatever could be done to solve the mystery. Miss Sargent and her mother left the house. The elder lady would not hear of their passing another night, though her daughter did not seem in the least afraid. Immediately following, I went straight to a builder's in the neighborhood. I engaged him to send some men to examine the flooring between the two haunted rooms. The builder received my order with marked interest. I knew there was something the matter with that house, he observed. It ain't likely that tenant after tenant would come away scared without something was wrong. Then Mr. Giltstrap once lived in it himself, did he? I exclaimed. Seeing that I built it for him, I can say he did, was the answer. And why did he leave it? I demanded, fairly roused. But the builder could not or would not satisfy my curiosity on that head. Mr. Giltstrap was a good customer of mine. He always paid me regular, and I ain't got nothing to say against him. The builder's interest led him to accompany his men, a carpenter and a plasterer, to the scene of the action. There I pointed out the place on the ceiling, as nearly as I could judge it, from which the ghostly dew had appeared to fall. The men took measurements, and then, proceeding to the attic above, located a spot under the bed in which I had tried to sleep. The bed was quickly removed, the floor stripped off, and in the space between the joists there was exposed a mass of lime. Both the men, as well as their master, were quick to declare that the lime could not have been left there when the house was completed. That lime has been put there for no good, the builder asserted. If you want some things hidden away and destroyed, there's nothing better than what lime is when it's fresh. It burns as well as fire and makes no smoke. You mean a dead body? I said, shuddering. Oh, I don't say nothing about that, the builder answered, pulling himself up. It ain't for me to say what that lime's been used for. All I say is that it wasn't me that left it there, nor yet my men. The two men began clearing the stuff away. The volatile element had evidently evaporated long ago. As they struck downward with their tools, one of them went through the plaster of the ceiling below, and a shaft of light came up. An exclamation from one of the men followed. Blimey! I bent down and peered into the cavity. On a large beam which here crossed the floor, I saw a deep black stain. It was the stain of long-dried blood. A moment after, the carpenter stooped suddenly, groped about with one hand amid the woodwork, and drew forth to the light a small, sharp stiletto, rusted with the same dismal stain. <sighs> Nothing more was found. I gave the builder an order to entirely renew the flooring between the two haunted rooms, and from the time that it was done there has never again been the slightest complaint from any occupier of the property. I let the greenhouse almost immediately to a respectable tenant, a retired schoolmaster, who changed its name. 
Before a year was out, I was able to dispose of it to a purchaser at the price of £1,250, a sum which enabled me to compensate Miss Sargent for her trying experience. The most extraordinary part of the story remains to be told. The report of what had taken place having gotten abroad in Wallington, the local police came to me to obtain the stiletto which I had been careful to preserve. By its means they were enabled to unearth a crime which had gone unsuspected till that hour, and to extort a confession from the murderer. Into the details of this terrible case I do not mean to enter. It is sufficient to say that the victim had perished while asleep in the attic, and that his blood had actually soaked through the ceiling into the room below, which was that of his murderer, Giltstrap. The Story of the Greenhouse, Wallington, by Alan Upward. What did you think of that ending? It's a bit abrupt, isn't it? I mean, we don't get the information on who the murder victim is. We don't know why Giltstrap committed that murder. But in a way, it makes sense because our two characters are really trying to solve the mystery of the haunting, and they do that very satisfactorily. Once they find that, that weapon and pass it on to the police, then the police take over and they take care of the, the criminal investigation, which certainly makes sense. Do you really want a realtor and his secretary to be tracking down a murderer? Well, maybe you do. But um, there is a certain logic here. I mentioned in the beginning that this is the first of five adventures with Alwine Sargent and Jack Hargreaves, and it pretty much sets everything up. You find out what the premise of the series is. You find out that Alwine is clairvoyant. She's really kind of the brains of the operation. She has the mental ability to solve these mysteries, and so she's essentially the Sherlock Holmes of the duo. And the Dr. Watson is Jack Hargreaves, who's a real estate agent, who, because of this first adventure, he gets introduced to other haunted houses. And that's an interesting thing about the series. The stories build on each other as they go. For instance, the, the duo improves on their investigative techniques. Alwine, with her clairvoyant abilities, that begins to take kind of a toll on her, and Jack is very worried that he's putting her through too much as they do these investigations. There's even a bit of a relationship that develops between the two main characters, and so the stories work very well together as a whole. And yet, as far as I know, after the original run in Royal Magazine, these stories were never reprinted as a book. That was pretty standard operating procedure for publishers in the early 1900s. You run a magazine series, and then you republish it as a book, and you've got another source of revenue that way. I think in this case, there just wasn't enough material to do that. You need about 10 or 12 stories to fill a book, and Alan Upward only wrote five of these. So they sat in that old, old magazine and were never, never seen again. That's not entirely true. One or two of the stories have been published individually in, say, a ghost story anthology. But as far as I know, they've never been published in a book until, <laughs> until now. Let me explain. 
I came across a number of similar occult detective characters that exist only in, say, two adventures, maybe three, possibly four, or in this case, five, and I put them all together in a book titled From Eerie Cases to Early Graves, Five Short-Lived Occult Detective Series. It's a nice volume for somebody who's a fan of occult detective fiction or for somebody who wants to be introduced to this curious cross-genre of supernatural fiction and mystery fiction. If you know Karnacki the Ghost Finder or John Silence or The X-Files or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know what I'm talking about. These are occult detectives. Sometimes they're ordinary people who explore the supernatural. Sometimes, though, they are detectives with supernatural abilities who either solve criminal mysteries or look into supernatural mysteries. You can find out a lot more about From Eerie Cases to Early Graves at brombonesbooks.com. There you'll be able to find out who are the detectives in it, who are the writers in it. You can even read my introduction to the book. Once again, the title is From Eerie Cases to Early Graves, Five Short-Lived Occult Detective Series. You can learn all about it at brombonesbooks.com. It's one of the books that I'm most proud of. I'm Tim Prossel, and thank you very much for listening.